Grab your Bibles if you haven't already done so. Let's open them to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 1. There's an outline in the, in the uh, bulletin that you have in your hand there. You could pull that out. If you're looking for Matthew 1, it's the first page of the New Testament, page 1496 in that book rack Bible. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, and we've just commenced on an expositional study of the book of Matthew, which means we're going to go verse by verse through this entire book, and this is a great place to start because the first couple of chapters of Matthew are the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect for Advent. Today we're going to be exploring the beauty of God's providence in looking at the human ancestry of Jesus Christ. We're looking at genealogy today. We're looking at the roots, the family tree of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's funny, I've met people that are full into genealogy. Uh, just love to study it, love to go back, try to find out something about their ancestors. I'm a little afraid to do that about my family, just to be honest, okay? You know, you never know what you're going to find when you go back there. Someone has said, you know, that uh, when you shake your family tree, watch out for the nuts that are falling out. Um, <laughs> Some of us are just go bonkers on this stuff, and we really love it. It's a hobby or it's a passion. And some of us could care less. We don't really know much further back than our own grandparents, maybe as far back as it goes. So today we're going to look in this amazing chapter of Matthew, and, and you've got your eyes on it. You can see where we're going today. And, and I know some of you, I teased about this last week. You come to this chapter, and you go, okay, I should start in verse 18. Because verse 1 and following just doesn't seem very gripping to our souls. And you might be asking the question like, well, God, why did you put this in the Bible? Or, or what could this ever do to transform my life? Or right now you might be asking, why did I come to church today? Um, I, I know how that feels. I've felt that way about passages like this before where there's just a lot of names and names that are hard to pronounce. But since we believe that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, we believe that it's all for our benefit and it's all God's word. And so we don't shy away from any part of scripture here at Three Crosses. Now I'm going to suggest to you today that Matthew's intent in writing this gospel uh, this passage may be one of the most important passages in the entire book. If you were to pull Matthew aside, in knowing what his intent was, his intent was to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that the Jews were waiting for, I think he would say, look, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, the most important part of my book. Because if we don't get off the platform here, we don't get off the platform anywhere. The whole argument of who Jesus Christ is stands and falls really on what we're about to read here this morning. Matthew really saw this as, a, as an incredibly important part. And if you were a Jew living in Matthew's day, you knew how important genealogy was. Everybody knew what tribe they were from, the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you had inheritance or property rights or you were serving God in the temple, you had to know what tribe you were from. And your ancestry would show whether you were qualified to either serve or qualified to take this inheritance or whatever. Genealogy was huge for the Jews living in Jesus' day. 
Another thing that's important to understand about the context of Matthew 1 is that when Jesus Christ began his public ministry, there had already been many false messiahs who had come. And let's not forget that when the angels appeared to the shepherds and they ran into the little town of Bethlehem and then the magi from the east, and we'll be looking at these stories in the weeks to come, they come, they speak to Herod, Herod puts out a hit call on all the babies born because the, you know, the magi leave without telling him where the Messiah was. And you can imagine from that time forward, there was this anticipation. Something was going on. God was breaking into history. There was There was this messianic anticipation that was palpable in the air. And so Matthew wants to be really clear to his readers that we can place total trust in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's not an imposter, he's not a fake, he's not a pretender like all the rest were. And so he comes to the scene and Matthew wants to bring to his readers a credible account of his lineage, so important for the Jews. Now, we're going to read the text, and uh, I'm just going to read it as quickly as I'm able to, and what I'm going to invite you to do as I read through this text is see if you can pick out some of the storylines. Just anything that comes to your mind, I just want you to kind of be listening for familiarity, okay? Let's begin, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Take a breath. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the mother of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Take a breath. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." These were the 14, these, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. All right, now, are you awake? Everybody awake? This is an amazing text. Now, you probably saw some things that were familiar there, right? You saw some names. Oh, I know that. Oh, I, I, and you were kind of following through. But there were some things that were unfamiliar to, uh, to you as well. Here's how I'm going to break this down today, and it's, you know, my goal is always to give simple, uh, memorable direction so that we get the plain sense meaning of the text, and here's what Matthew's trying to do. I believe 
And here's how the sermon's going to flow this morning. When it comes to Jesus being our true king, and that's what he's saying here. Jesus is our true king. Let's all say that together. Jesus is our true king. That's what he's wanting to convince us of. When it comes to Jesus being our true king, I want to show you that Matthew is saying, number one, here's how we know he's our true king. Number two, here's what we know of our true king. And number three, here's who we know is the true king. Okay, that's a simple, but that's what Matthew's going to do. And I'm going to show you this, what it means. I know you're skeptical right now. I can just see it. Some of you are going, are you kidding me? Are we going to really teach through this right now? Yes, we are. And I'm going to share with you that I think it's going to be one of the best, most encouraging. You're going to fall in love with this genealogy right now. Are you ready? Okay, this is how we know, all right? If you're taking notes, this is how we know. Matthew begins with the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The first two words in the Greek, biblos geneseos. Now those words, biblos, we get the word Bible or record. Geneseos means origin. It's the word we get Bible and it's the word we get genealogy. There's no other phrase in scripture like this except back in the book of Genesis, the fifth chapter where it talks about the record of Adam's genealogy. Now if you've studied genealogy in the Gospels, you'll know that only Matthew and Luke include a genealogy. Matthew begins with it because he's proving that Jesus, say it with me, is our true king. Luke's intent or purpose in writing his gospel is to show that Jesus is the son of God. So he doesn't even get to the genealogy till the third chapter. And he's really more interested in following Mary's line because, you know, Joseph really wasn't the true father of Jesus. Are we all on the same page with that? And in fact, Luke's make, Luke makes the point, who was the supposed father of Jesus, indicating that Joseph comes along. Did I say Joseph was the father of Jesus? Joseph comes along to close the gap because Matthew, watch this, to the Jew reading this genealogy, if at the end of the genealogy, Joseph is left off and we've just got Mary who is impregnated by the Holy Spirit, which we're going to read about next week, if that's all we've got... We've got a busted genealogy because for the Jew, it came down through the male line, okay? So Matthew closes the loop on that. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backward all the way to to Adam being the son of God. So we've got from Jesus backwards to Adam, and in Matthew's account, we've got from Abraham forward to the life of Jesus, Now again, the reason I'm telling you that is because some of you will go home and you'll read Luke's gospel and you'll say, wait a minute, I'm confused. This seems like a different genealogy. Well, number one, it's because it traces Mary's line, which was also of the tribe of Judah, and their ancestral line kind of does this. It kind of crosses in a few places and it goes this way. But at the end of it all, it tells us that both Mary and Joseph, legitimate parents, Mary the virgin gives birth to the Christ, who is our true king. Back to Matthew. Now in Matthew's account, what I want to show you here there, if you're taking notes, what Matthew is showing in terms of this is how we know that Jesus is our true king, here it is. Jesus is the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew starts. This is a proof text for Jesus being the the, the true Messiah. 
Because if you were a Jew, you knew that, first of all, God promised David, remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promised David that there would be a son that would sit on his throne and reign how long? Forever. Well, you know, there's no earthly son that can do that, and so that's a a telescoping prophecy. It's a prophecy that's looking far into the future. We see that in the book of Isaiah in a familiar Christmas text, Isaiah 9-6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government there will be no end. Is speaking about the one that was coming to sit on David's throne. So we know right off the bat that Matthew's saying, this one that I'm describing to you is the son of David. He's the, the reigning king whom God promised through the prophet Nathan to David. But Matthew also includes Abraham. He's also the son of Abraham. Now why does he include Abraham? Because we remember in Genesis 22, well it actually begins in 12 and then goes to 15, 18, and then chapter 22 where it all comes together. Remember when Abraham took his son Isaac up to the altar to sacrifice him? God was testing his obedience. Wow, what a test that was. And right before he's to slay his son, God stops him. There's a ram in the thicket. There's a substitutionary sacrifice that Abraham takes. This is all a picture of the coming Messiah that will come. And God says to Abraham in those words in in Genesis 22, verses 24 and following, he says, from your offspring, I will bless the nations of the world. Now, this is interesting because in Galatians chapter uh, 3, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there quickly, uh, Galatians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, where God says in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, of your offspring I will bless the world, of your seed I will bless the world. Listen to what Paul says, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 verse 16. It says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is whom? Christ. So Paul closes the loop of Abraham's promise, the promise to Abraham given in Genesis 22. The apostle Paul closes the loop in Galatians 3 saying, when God said that you you will bless the nations of the world through your seed, he didn't say seeds meaning everybody. He said seed meaning one, Jesus, the Christ. So Matthew, in the first verse of this book, he says this is how we know Jesus is the one because he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Now, if you want to translate that down a little further, if you're taking notes, what this means is Jesus is both king and savior. Think about that. He's king and he's savior. We see his kingliness through the line of David. We see his uh, savior uh, hood through uh, the promise to Abraham. So Matthew is making the argument, he's the real deal. He's the one we're waiting for. Now we come to verses 2 through 16, which is really the the focal point of this entire genealogy, where now he's going to pan out, and he's going to start with Abraham, and he's going to work his way down through this genealogy. 
Now let me just give you a, a couple of disclaimers about this text. First of all, Matthew's an accountant, and so he's going to give what looks like a verbatim gener- generation by generation account of the coming of Christ, but he's really not doing that. A careful study of this passage shows that some generations are actually skipped. What he's doing is, is he's showing us the primary blocks, the building blocks, the essential marks that he wants his readers to see. And any Jew reading this would have been scratching their head and thinking, oh, yes, I know this story. Oh, of course, this story, this story leads to this story. He's taking the big building blocks and he's building his argument that not only this is how we know Jesus is our great king, but this is what we know. This is what we know. And what we know, what we know is from this verses 2 through uh, 16, if you're taking notes, what we know is that Jesus is God in human flesh. This is what we know. Because every one of these people are humans. (laughs) You get that? It's It's all a human tree here. It's all human. God didn't just sort of zap somebody into the existence, into the world, and that's my son. He was not extraterrestrial, you know, so to speak. He was not an alien that way. And there are, there are religions that build around Jesus Christ being this cosmic force that comes from the heavens and he's like, he's not human. He's just, and even back in this day, people doubted that Messiah would actually be of human origin. Matthew wants it to be crystal clear. What we're talking about here is Jesus being God in human flesh. Now, I've put some scriptures there in your outline. I don't have time to go through them right now. But they're beautiful scriptures that describe Jesus' deity, meaning that he is God in human flesh. Now, what this means in terms of our text is this. This means that Jesus' human ancestry is a reminder of the way God's providence works that God works out this mysterious, magnificent, miraculous plan using people. That This is amazing. That God chose to enter into history by using people like you and me. I think if you went out and interviewed most people that don't understand God's covenant, don't understand the plan of salvation, don't understand what we're doing here this morning, why we're worshiping. If you ask most people, they would assume that if God was to send his son, even if he was going to do it as a human being, he would only do it through perfect people. He would only do it through the holy people of the Bible. Well, you know, as I read my Bible, there's not a whole lot of holy people in there. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just saying Everyone from beginning to end are sinners except for the perfect one, Jesus. They're all sinners. Everyone's sinners. And as you read down through this text, here's where you start to see God's providence really go to work. Now, I'm going to break this down into three little subsets about how God's providence works. And every one of these names could be a sermon in themselves, but I'm going to do a lot of summary, but you're going to get it. I think you'll be, get this really fast. First, I want you to notice that God's providence works among those we might consider unlikely. Unlikely. There's a few people in here that we would probably consider unlikely. And specifically, if you're taking notes, I want you to notice, uh, I want you to notice these unlikely people, especially the women in this text. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is because any Jewish reader reading Matthew 1 would have been immediately stopped by the fact that Matthew was including women in the genealogy. Women were not included normally. Why was Matthew doing that? Because Matthew's about to introduce a really important woman. Her name is Mary. 
And Matthew wants to set the groundwork for the fact that God is doing some unprecedented things. But it's, but it's in a sense, it's not completely unprecedented because there are other women involved in this story. But look at some of these women. I mean, first you're reading down and you realize, okay, Abraham, I know him, of course, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, okay, Judah, he was one of the 12 of Jacob's sons. And then he, he Judah, let's just stop with Judah for a minute. Judah, Judah had a, a daughter-in-law, her name was Tamar. And Tamar married one of his sons and he died and then married another one of his sons and he died and she came saying, could I have your, you know, your next son? And he said, you're bad news. And he said, forget it, you know. <laughs> I'm summing up some things here. But anyway, hope I get this accurate. I got a lot of names in my mind right now. But basically, that, so she gets shunned. She gets put away, put aside. He wouldn't allow her to fulfill what the Old Testament law of leveret marriage was, that the line could be continued through a brother. But Judah says no. And then Judah himself He's not a very stellar example of moral character because he's walking down the road one day, sees Tamar, and she presents herself as a prostitute. And he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And then he finds out about this, and he wants to put her to death. And she says, the baby within me, actually it's babies, come from you. Does this sound like something that could be in a modern-day soap opera? Yes. It's an amazing story. Tamar, the incestuous daughter of daughter-in-law of Judah, sins by having sex with Judah and him with her. And oh boy, talk about an amazing uh, turn of events. She gives birth to twins. Their names are Perez and Zerah. They're right there in the text. You go down a little further and you read about Rahab. You remember Rahab? She was a prostitute. She she let the spies come into her home there in Jericho and, and gave them safe refuge as they were spying out the land. And she got enough understanding of the God of Israel through understanding these people who were of moral character. She decides, I don't want to be with those people anymore, speaking of her own people, and I don't want to be on that side anymore, speaking of her own side. She said, I want to go with the God of Israel. She joins the ranks of Israel. And she, according to Scripture, marries a guy named Salmon, that's an interesting name, isn't it? Who has a son, they have a son, and his name is Boaz. Now, where does Boaz show up in Scripture? Remember the story of Ruth? Ruth is a Moabitess. She left Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go to the land of Moab. Or excuse me, not her, Naomi did. She brings her sons. They marry Moabite women. Ruth was one of them, and both of those guys die. Both uh, Ruth and Orpah's husbands die. And Ruth hangs around with Naomi, and when Naomi finally decides to go back to Bethlehem, back to the place of bread, back to the place of her homeland, uh, Ruth wants to come with her, and, and Naomi protests and says no, but Ruth persists, and Naomi says, okay, come. So she comes, and here Ruth, the Bible, ta we taught through the book of Ruth, beautiful story of God's providence, how God takes this little Moabitess, and Ruth makes the emphasis all through the book of Ruth that she's not of Israel, she's a Moabitess. She catches the eye of Boaz, and Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer and redeems her, uh, and, and they have a, a child, and, and, and beautiful things happen from there. But, but before we get to that, remember Lot. Who, who were the Moabites to begin with? Why Ruth shows up in Moab. Who were the Moabites? Remember Lot? Lot sleeps with his two daughters, 
respectively, and those two daughters give birth to a, one named Moab and one named Ben-Ami, which means Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites come from Lot's indiscretion with, with a woman and uh, with those two women, which were his daughters. <sighs> Talk about a lot, of, a lot of soap opera stuff here. Crazy stuff. And they become the Moabites, of which Ruth uh, is, is one of them. And then we've even got the a veiled reference to Bathsheba, the woman that David lusted after, got her pregnant, put her husband to death, all of this stuff. I mean, I look at this, and all I can think of is there's a lot of unlikely folks here. I mean, I wouldn't say, yeah, 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 that one, that one, that one. I'd say, that one, that one, really, that one? And that's what Matthew's saying. He's saying, do you realize that, that this Jesus, who is the true king, our true king, do you realize that he comes from a line of a lot of unlikely folks? You know, there are a lot of us today that look at our lives, we're kind of unlikely too. We don't really have this or that, or we think we need this other thing, or we, we're always aspiring to something. I remember reading the book, I mentioned it probably a year or more ago, uh, by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, and uh, her book title is called something like The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she talks about in that book about how she uh, was a lesbian, feminist, PhD, tenured professor at a major university in our country, and had a vehement hatred toward Christ followers, especially any of those from the evangelical background, and she would write about them and protest against them and all this stuff. Well, one day, a pastor, a very unlikely pastor in this little town of hers back in Pennsylvania wrote her to her, the column that she had written in a newspaper, just asking questions, just simply showing love and care, and it just kind of gripped her heart. And she started writing back. Eventually, that led to some conversations. It led to a friendship, and ultimately, it led to her to pl placing her full, complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as her king, the king that had come to save and rescue her life. And she says in that book that it was a train wreck conversion experience for her because everything that she stood for and everything that her life was about up to that point was completely decimated when she came to Jesus and found Jesus as her true king. But that's the truth of everybody that follows Jesus. We're all unlikely candidates. We couldn't Check one and say, now that's a person that I would have expected. That's the way God does it. That's the way God's providence is. He, he works among the unlikely. But there's something else about this text. Verses 6 through 11, and we start going through these list of kings. David, it starts with David, then the father of Solomon. Let me tell you what God's providence does here. Not only does it show that God's providence works with the unlikely, but it also shows us that it works with those that we might consider ungodly. Not just unlikely, but ungodly. Now, in the previous section, we could say they were ungodly too. <laughs> but when you get to this section, wow. Th this is an amazing list. I mean, first you've got Solomon, who was a great king, a godly king, a wise king. And then he has a, a son named Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam didn't follow his father's teaching. Anybody here as parents, don't raise your hand, but if you're a parent and you've been raising your kid to follow Jesus and your kid has gone away from the Lord, run from the Lord, become, who knows, a blasphemer, a hater of God, whatever. I mean, you're, you just find yourself in this text because here is the continued repetition of godly parents instilling godliness in their kids and their kids turning their back and going the other way. 
Solomon has Rehoboam. Rehoboam is a wicked king. He gives birth to a son named Abijah. Abijah is a chip off the old man's block. He's just as bad, probably worse. Abijah becomes the father of Asa. Oh my goodness, the, the, the pendulum swings. Asa's a godly king. He comes back to the role of his great-grandparents. He becomes a God-fearer, a God-follower. He leads the people in righteousness. Asa becomes the father of Jehoshaphat, another great king. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. And then there's some, uh, and he's a wicked king. And there's a bunch of generations skipped right there. And then we come to Uzziah, good king. And then Jotham, good king. And then Ahaz, wicked king. Hezekiah, good king. Manasseh, wicked king. Ammon, wicked king. Do you get the picture? It's like a pendulum, bing bong, ping pong game. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. There's seven good, six wicked in this passage of kings. And you say to me, this is the line that, D- that Jesus came through? And the answer to that is yes. In fact, if you're a Bible student, you probably already know that in verse 11, Josiah, good king Josiah, gives birth to Jeconiah. Jeconiah is a wicked king. Jeconiah's wickedness actually was the last king uh, before God put the gavel down and the judgment came and they were all carried off into exile. Jehoiakim or Jeconiah, same guy, same name, is taken off into captivity because of his wickedness. And you know that uh, the book of Jeremiah tells us, chapter 22, that that Jeconiah would no longer have a son to sit on the throne. He would be known as childless. Now you know if you're a Bible student, you know that there's a problem there because this is the line through which Jesus comes. Isn't it interesting that Matthew carries this line because, again, all of these names mark up the regal heir, the rightful heir to the throne. That's his argument. When you go over to Luke, you find that the narrative changes that it's not Solomon that the line is traced through for Mary's side, but it's another son of David named Nathan. Thus, the escaping of the judgment of Jeconiah's judgment or condemnation that he would no longer have a son on the throne who would reign in Israel. Isn't that amazing? The seed comes through Mary, not through Joseph. But Matthew's very clear to make sure that his readers understand that the family tree fits. It comes all the way down, even through wicked Jeconiah. I don't know if you're following that. I throw that in for some of you that might be a little more astute in your study. And by the way, when you study the Bible, you got to put a little effort into it too. Don't expect me to do all the work, please. (laughs) I'm serious. I'm going to goad you all through this series to be students of God's Word. And if some of this seems way over your head, I'm not apologizing. You need to be up with that. You do. And some of you should be well on your way, be instructing others of us. Little pastoral exhortation there. So you see the providence of God as he works not only among the unlikely, but the ungodly. And some of us say, my life is such a wreck, and I came to know Christ, and everything was so terrible in my life. How could I ever, ever be used of God? Look at this list. You can look at this list and start feeling pretty good about yourself, probably. There's unlikely people. There's ungodly people. And lastly... Verses 12 through 16, I find there that we come to this place of what I would call unknown people. God's providence works among those we would consider unknown. Now, we recognize Jeconiah. Remember, he went into the exile, wicked king. 
He gives birth to Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And we know those names. Those are big, powerful names in the Old Testament. But then we get to Zerubbabel. After that, Abiud, Abiud Eliakim. We don't have any record in the scripture of any of these names. None. Zero. So don't scratch your head and say, wait a minute, where do we find any of these guys? We don't. We don't know where Matthew got them. Were they in the temple uh, archives? Was this oral tradition? Was it an extra biblical uh, account that Matthew borrowed from to make sure that we got it right? I'm not suggesting there's any question to it. I'm just saying we don't see any name past Zerubbabel anywhere in Scripture. And to be honest, I'm comforted by that. Because what that tells me is that does not, God not only uses the unlikely and the ungodly, but He also uses the unknown. We're all a bunch of nobodies. Who, what's going to be written about your life? Probably nothing. There may be a tribute uh, at your funeral service, but most of us will not go down through the annals of history being known as something great. And hopefully not something terrible. But the reality is most of us are just nobodies. And I love that about Scripture. That God even uses nobodies to do His most phenomenal work. He uses the unlikely, the ungodly, but He also uses the un- unknowing. Notice these exiles, these ones that we don't recognize. We see this right here in the text. How do we know Jesus is the king, the true king? Because he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. What do we know about this Jesus that is our true king? We know that he is God in human flesh and this is his ancestry. And oh, by the way, he came through unlikely, ungodly, and unknown people. Wow. Now what is the last thing we learn from this? We learn that this is who we know. Who we know, Matthew tells us, is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. Look at it in verse 16, the end, who is called Christ. And then at the end of verse 17, 14 generations from each of these time periods to the time of Christ. Now, I want to just be clear, and I said it at the beginning a few minutes ago as we wrap things up. Matthew is not giving us the exact 14 generations. There were more than 42 full generations between the time of Abraham and the time of Christ. But what Matthew's doing is he's tipping our, his, his hat or his hand to the fact that he's an accountant. And, and numbers mean a lot to Matthew. And so Matthew has packaged three giant epics that were all clear in the mind of a Jew From the time of Abraham to King David, from the time of King David to the exile, from the time of the exile to the time of Christ, Matthew is saying there were these these generations in all of those three epics, and he's given 14 of them in each. You know why? So that no one will forget. He trusted his readers to actually commit this to memory. Now, I'm not going to ask you to commit all this to memory. But I am going to say it's important to recognize how God used all of these people. And if you could put it into something simple like we said this morning, God uses people. He uses the unlikely, the ungodly, and the unknown to do his most amazing work, all pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. So Matthew is saying he's the one that we've been waiting for, and he's still the one. And I just think that's a great place to end today because we shouldn't forget this either. 
Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the one. He's telling every Jew Jesus is the one. You say, well, wait a minute. I know Jews that don't believe in Jesus. Yes, most don't. Romans 11 tells us that right now there's a partial hardening, a veil over the eyes. Why? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. You know why there's a veil over the Jews? So that you and I can come into salvation. What do you think about that? And God is patient, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to the knowledge of his Son. And one day, according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, one day his people Israel, as a nation, will see this one that they rejected and call him king of kings themselves. Unleashed in the great tribulation, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. It's going to be amazing. Now, we'll get to that when we get to Matthew 24 and 25 in a couple of years from now. (laughs) Better be studying. This book is about proving that Jesus is the Christ. So here's my question to you. Is he your king? Is he your Messiah? And if not, right now, through repentance and faith, you can follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much that hasn't been said in this sermon, but we trust your Holy Spirit to take what time would not allow, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking into our lives in deep and rich ways. Some of us know without question that we have encountered the living God this morning, and we can't even quantify it with words. We can only sit in awe of who you are. And Lord, if you brought someone to this service this morning that recognizes, maybe for the first time, that there is a God in heaven and that he would so choose to send his son through the, through the vehicle of sinful people and yet skipping over or missing the sin gene without the Father's seed, but only the pregnancy of Mary by the Holy Spirit, bringing a life of absolute and complete obedience and perfection, one to whom no one is in any way compared to in this world. And so, Lord, if you brought someone today that you're just putting all that together in their mind, this is why we serve Jesus, this is why we follow Jesus, I pray that you would allow them by, by your grace right now to just simply repent of sin and believe on you. I'm going to stop in my prayer for just a moment. I would like to clarify as your heads are bowed that the most important issues related to our salvation is repentance and faith. God is not just asking you to believe something intellectually. He's wanting you to, to ask forgiveness, to be sorrowful over sin and rebellion against him. And if his grace has led you to that this morning, then you can come to him with a spirit of repentance and belief on Jesus. And the Bible says that all who believe on him shall have eternal life. And that can be you right here, right now. So Lord, have your way in this time as we about to enter into a beautiful time of
of celebrating and remembering what you did for us at the cross. May this be a beautiful expression of, of worship and praise and being more intimate with you. And we thank you for what you'll accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.